Thank you, Joe David and Coach Ronnie. Always good thoughts. One of the blessings I've had to sit around the shepherd's table is because Ronnie's there. And um, actually, I guess we came in together, but um, he was the first choice. <laughs> I don't know that. I just said that. I love them all, but Ronnie's special. Well, here we are. By the way, buenos dias, mis hermanos, y feliz año nuevo. Happy New Year to everyone this morning. Um, I don't know if you saw the New Year in. I did. Um, I celebrated Nova Scotia time, but I, I saw it in. <laughs> you can look that up, by the way. Couldn't even finish the Georgia game. Wow, was that a game or what? You know, really, I don't know um, exactly, uh, I know exactly what I'm going to share, but I can tell you just a few days ago, I, I, I hardly ever make a resolution for the new year. Um, it's sort of, you know, every week I resolve to be whatever I can do a little bit more. Um, oh, it does give us the opportune time to be able to um, assess our previous year and say, okay, Lord, where would you like for us to improve? Um, I think it's okay to make physical resolutions, but in all honesty, the scripture tells us that physical health availeth little. It doesn't say none at all, it just says little. And the context there by the great apostle Paul was in the context of spiritual improvement. So physical life compared to our spiritual life is important, but it really pales next to the significance of one's spirit. So as you make your resolutions, let it not be just, well, to lose weight or work out more. Let it be internal. I can tell you last night I woke up, even though I did go to bed before 10 o'clock, right around 10 o'clock, which is Halifax time. Uh, and around 10 o'clock, I went to bed, got up around 1 o'clock. That doesn't happen too often. Um, it, it did when I preached before, and it did last night because I knew that I was going to be sharing a few thoughts this morning. And I took the Bible and went and sat in my chair and turned the light on in the living room and kind of made some changes, not written, but in my head. And... Um, one of the changes I made was, I'm going to share with you what my only, in fact, it's the whole message, and I pray that you'll join with me, what my only New Year's resolution is. And it comes not from the book of Revelation, really from Genesis to Revelation, but it's so reinforced in those 22 chapters of the apocalypse. The only real apocalyptic book we have in the New Testament follows in the order of Ezekiel and Daniel. And I'm starting that class, by the way. I started a couple of weeks ago with an, over, with an overview, and this coming Sunday, next Sunday, we'll be looking at the first verse. I, I know it's a shameful plug. For, for those of you who are adult teachers, if you want to have similar experiences, come on, you, you preach. <laughs> we will be beginning that text next week. Okay, so let, let's talk about 
the theme, very quickly, the theme of revelation. It's really clear, and you could take it in one sentence, the real theme of the, the apocalypse is this, the truth, Jesus Christ will return one day, that second coming, and when he does, he'll conquer all evil and make all things new. And that's really what it's all about. A lot of symbolic language that's challenging for us as, you know, 2,000 years removed to understand, but not challenging for the seven churches. They really understood what, what John was writing about and how it was revealed to him. So what I want to do is I want to simply uh, start, I, I only want to share three texts this morning. Um, one is from Revelation chapters 4 and 5. The other is the same text, little bit different twist that our brother Patterson shared last week. Love his application uh, to scripture. That's one of his strengths in preaching. I've shared that with him and it's not easy to do. You can uh, exegete, you can look at the text, you can study it. It's the application that's challenging, I think, for anyone behind this, this pulpit, any pulpit. It's challenging. So keep that in mind and, and applaud your brother Patterson when uh, when the Spirit really touches your heart. Anyway, that was Luke 2, verses 10 through 12 last week. And then I want to close with Revelation 19, connected to 1 Corinthians 13. So basically about four passages. The first two will take the bulk of the time. The latter two will move through, and then the message by God's grace and mercy will be ours for us to go and make whatever changes we choose to make nudged by the Holy Spirit. So, Revelation 4 and 5 is the foundation, and it feeds into this singular resolution, the foundation of all of Revelation. You'll remember that the first uh, three chapters deal with the seven churches, and by extension to Antioch, and if you lose that, you might as well not even read Scripture. I mean, it serves no purpose for us to read the Bible and say, wow, it was written to them two millennia ago. You know, why even study it? Why read it? It's a living document. The, Christ is the living word, not just the written word. The living word, and without that, nothing makes much difference in our daily walk. So, Revelation was written to Antioch, to us, to me. And that's the first three chapters. We can really, you know, in the class we'll unfold that, unpack it. But then we get into the, what's called the great throne scene. I've shared it before in years past, so for those of you who have a great memory, then, then you'll remember some of this. But I want to, 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 to really um, bring it to the surface and connect it with Luke chapter 2. What we have in Revelation 4 and 5 is God, and he's described, once again, this is the apocalyptic literature, this is, this is symbolic, God is described as a precious gem, a jasper or a carnelian, brilliant gem. You could hardly even look at it when the light of God shone through it. And God, the Father, and the Trinity is there. God the Father is holding a scroll. The scroll has seven seals, the word, the number seven, sign of complete perfection. It's used multiple times 
in, in the book of Revelation. So God's holding this scroll with seven seals. Around God are four living creatures. They're described kind of with, with Daniel, you know, terminology, but in fact, they were, they were, they had to be an order of angel of some kind, and very likely the cherubim, Genesis 3, who were protecting the, the, the east gate of the Garden of Eden, because every time something needed protect us, uh, protected, God would send the cherubim to do it. Flaming swords, and so you've got God You've got four living creatures. Around the four living creatures are 24 elders. We don't know who they are, but they're, they're authoritative. They're wearing golden crowns, white robes, and sitting on thrones. And just before the altar are seven lamps, seven lampstands, the seven spirits of God, clearly the Holy Spirit. And around the 24 elders are, the Bible says, a myriad, myriads and myriads of angels. All the word means is it's innumerable, you can't count them. Millions and millions and millions, I don't know, but you can't count them. Everybody, all of the good angels were there, not the fallen, not Beelzebul and, and his crew, but all the good. And so that's the throne scene that John's privy to. A strong angel steps forward and bellows to the universe, who is worthy to come forward and take the scroll from the hand of God and break open its seals? And no one moved. Not the cherubim, not the four living creatures, not any one of the 24 elders, not Michael the archangel or Gabriel who had to be there, or any other of the angelic Forces, no one budged. John, who's privy to this, begins to weep. And as the book unfolds and the scroll is revealed, you can really appreciate John's tears because the whole theme of Revelation is repentance and redemption. If you repent, you will be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and you will be good, and if you, do, if you choose not to repent, then you've condemned yourself. And so John is weeping. Well, one of the elders walks over to John and says, John, do not weep, don't cry about it, because there is one, only one, who is worthy. And then the elder describes this one worthy person. He is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. From this Davidic kingly thought that the Jews had in mind that God would send the Messiah to be this conquering king, destroy Rome and all evil, and reinstate Israel as the chosen people of God on earth. And so John turns expecting to see this Davidic king in all of his glory. And what he sees is not what he heard, and that's another theme what he sees is a lamb, not any lamb, a paschal lamb. Throat is cut, blood coming out. And this lamb, God the Son, the Spirit is there, the Father has the scroll. And this lamb boldly walks up to the throne, grabs the scroll from the hand of the Father, and begins to break open the seals. 
And every time a seal is broken open, a great catastrophe takes place. The seventh seal ushers in seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet ushers in seven visions, four, and then later three. The uh, last vision uh, ushers in uh, the seven bowls of wrath, and the last bowl of wrath ends in Revelation 18. And now we're ready for the final battle. By the way, the same battle is described three times in Revelation. Three, using different symbology. But it's, a, it, it's the same battle, I think, that's described in three different ways. And so you have in Revelation 19, you have the final battle, 19 and 20, and then the new heaven and the new earth, 21 and 22. Do you see the theme? The theme is the time will come when Jesus Christ returns to conquer evil and to make all things new. New heavens, new earth. Well, my resolution is, don't take this wrong, I'm hoping the little brief message can clarify it, is to do the same. My question, as I read through Revelation multiple times recently, is, as I began reading through it again, how, how did you do that? Now, how... Lamb of God, how did you conquer evil? And you're told over and over and over again how God conquers evil. And you're actually told that from Genesis forward. Revelation just happens to be this apocalyptic storyline and the conclusion. And what does John close with? Come, Lord Jesus, you know. Don't wait. Come. Okay. What's critical is for us to understand the concept of the Lamb of God. By the way, the expression Lamb of God is used 29 times in Revelation. Only 22 chapters. 29 times. He's never referred to as this great Davidic, powerful, physically powerful king who's going to conquer with a, sword, a real sword and bring bloodshed to all evil and then make all things new. He's always referenced as the Lamb of God. Last week, when our brother Patterson shared that narrative from the, what we call the Christmas narrative, the Christmas story in Luke 10, pick it up in the field for just a moment. Uh, verse 10, be not afraid. An angel, very possibly Gabriel, he's not named, but he's, he's in the scene because he'll be talking to Mary and Joseph real soon. And so I, I just think it was Gabriel, we don't know. But an angel appeared to the shepherds of the field and said, be not afraid. Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, for to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the uh, Lord, and you will find, and this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And then verse 16 of Luke 2 reminds us that the shepherds went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby in the manger. Well, I know I've posed this question here from this pulpit in years ago, and 
It's a good question. How did the shepherds know precisely where to find the baby Jesus? To begin with, and, and we can do this quickly, I think. I've learned a lot from Patterson. <laughs> he and I talk about it. We're such good friends. They weren't ordinary shepherds to begin with. Now, where does this come from? Does it come from Scripture, Matthew 1 or Luke 2? No, it's extra canonical. It's, it's outside of Scripture, but sure blends in well with the text, and that's what we as God's students do as we read Scripture, as we read the Bible. We do our very best to understand what it is so we can apply it. Once again, the, the, the emphasis on the, is, is on the application. So in the Mishnah, which was about a 700-year compilation of oral rabbinic tradition, it talks about this time of the year, talks about the Levitical priests who also were shepherds, Apparently, in the whole region between Bethlehem and Jerusalem is an is a ancient area over a thousand years old called the Migdal Eder, in which literally the Tower of the Flock, it didn't refer to the area, it referred to one specific man-made building that had been standing for a millennium. And we know that in Genesis uh, 35, that that's where Rachel was buried, close by. You know, Jacob's wife, the mother of, um, of, of, of Joseph and Benjamin. So this was a very keen area. The reason the temple in Jerusalem had to have their own shepherds is because over a quarter of a million uh, lambs were sacrificed every year. They're in the temple in Jerusalem, most of which occurred on Passover. Kind of let that figure soak in. 250,000 lambs, and some say all the way up to a million. I took the lowest number I, I, I found in, in years past, but 250,000. So these herds, the, pardon me, these flocks of sheep were huge. And so you've got not any ordinary shepherd. And by the way, their purpose for being there was to take the ewes, protect them uh, when they were getting ready to give birth because uh, Exodus 35, or Exodus 12, 35, the sacrificial lambs had to be not only one-year-old males, but they had to be without spot or blemish. And that's hard when the ewe is dropping her lamb in the field. No animal was ever taken into a birthing cave. The horses would, you know, the, the mares would drop, would, would, would drop their foals, the, the jennies, the donkeys would drop, the cattle would drop there in the field, and the lambs, the, the, the ewes would drop their, their, their uh, lambs in the field. But not in this case. In this case, they had to be without spot or blemish, and they needed a quarter of a million of them. So what they did was they had these huge flocks between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, and they had the uh, priestly shepherds who were not only trained from the Levitical side in the priesthood, but they were also trained to be shepherds. Every time a, a ewe was ready to give birth, they would gather that ewe, and they had a specific birthing cave that they would use. And they had generally, at least according to the Mishnah, they had this double-hewn limestone slab because I didn't know this until a few years ago, but ewes would often give birth to twins. And so when the ewe gave birth, they would take the little baby lambs and place them there, and they had a pile of swaddling cloth 
No other shepherd had swaddling cloth. Nobody swaddled animals of the field. You did swaddle humans. Ancient tradition that goes on all the way to today's moment, today's time. The Jews especially learned how to swaddle their babies, right? And so they had a pile of swaddling cloth, and every time the ewe would drop the lambs, they would quickly grab the lamb, swaddle it so it wouldn't thrash about hurting itself and therefore becoming blemished. So, may well be that when Mary and Joseph found no room in the little village, by the way, Bethlehem was a tiny village of about 300. Why was Joseph there? Well, he was there because of the census. And the Romans required every Jewish family to return to their ancestral home. So you know that Bethlehem swelled during the census taking. There was no inn, no motel, a different word used in scripture, but it's talking about there was no room for Mary and Joseph. Why? Because probably every home was jam-packed with family. Either Joseph had family there, but they were, they were already packed, or he didn't have family there, just it was his, his ancestral home. Somebody else brought up, I just heard the other day, I, literally just the other day, I uh, was reading uh, some rabbinic scholar, and he was talking about, well, also, every Jew could see that Mary was getting ready to deliver. I mean, it's pretty obvious. And so they had to make a choice. Do we host someone, do we host this, this Jewess who's going to be delivering a baby, and therefore having this uh, bloodshed in the house, an unceremonial clean house. Now we can't practice any, we can't worship on any holy day. Or do we simply say no? I think by God's design, they all said no. And the only place they could find was the birthing cave. And I, I suspect Joseph was familiar with it, knew where it was. They go to it. There's only one of them. And so when the angel appeared and told the shepherds, you know, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in the manger. And they knew exactly where to go. No other place had swaddling cloth and a manger. Now, does that bring attention to John the Baptist, 30 years later, when Jesus walks up and John has with him in John chapter 1, he has with him Andrew, the son of John, and probably John, the son of Zebedee, with him. Jesus walks up and he exclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Revelation 19, we have the final battle of the second coming. The final battle. You know who's leading the charge for God's army? He's called the faithful and true. Verses 11 through 16, Revelation 19. The faithful and true, the word of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's riding a white horse. And he's covered with blood. Behind him are the armies of heaven. 
You know what? They're also riding white horses and they have uh, white robes on. John goes as far to say that they were clean white linen robes. My question, and you'll see it as it unfolds, the question is, why did Jesus, who is the Word of God, faithful and true, King of kings, Lord of lords, why was he covered in blood before the battle even began? Pretty obvious, isn't it? It was his own blood. Out of his mouth was his only weapon. And the weapon was a two-edged sword. It was his word, logos. That was his weapon. And as you read through not only those two chapters, but really all of Scripture, as you read through, you realize that Christ conquered evil with love. He conquered evil with love. Either repent and be saved, or by your own disbelief you condemn yourself. Those are words from Scripture, right? John three sixteen. following, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Verse 18, He who believes is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already. It's their choice. And all of Revelation, Christ keeps giving evil a choice. It isn't too late. You can still repent. You can still repent. And you can still believe. And some, the Bible says, some did, but most didn't. Well, if Christ conquered evil with love, we can too. And that's the resolution. We know what love is. By the way, Jesus would say, that's why our Lord spoke in Matthew 5, 44, and so many other places as these come to mind right now. When Jesus said, bless your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, Romans 12, 21, uh, Paul quoting the uh, proverbial uh, Solomon in Proverbs. Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by so doing, you heap burning coals of fire on his head. Love, only love can convert the world. Hate can't do it. And I find it relatively easy to show love to Christ's people and much more challenging to show love to the enemies of the cross. And so my resolution is this, to reflect the love of Christ to the enemies of the cross more than I did last year in this year. How do we start? Well, love is patient and kind Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. 
Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things, and hopes all things. Love never ends. I do find it relatively easy to reflect the love of Christ to you because you're so lovable. I find it much more challenging to reflect the love of Christ to my own enemies, but to the enemies of Christianity, the enemies of the cross. But the only way that the Spirit of God can nudge them to repent is if I show love. Doesn't mean acquiescence. It means patience, kindness, all the way through that great text in 1 Corinthians. So let that be our resolution for this year. Reflect the love of Christ to the enemies of the cross and let God perform miracles in 2023. And all of God's people, I pray, say, Amen. Amen. If you feel the need to come to Christ, please stand and come. Pray where you are or pray down front.